0: Morning, everybody. Good. Save your strength. It is it is warm in here, isn't it? I hear it was worse last week, so there's some comfort there for you. But it's still warm. Still working on the sound a little bit. No problem. Sounds like it's might be in a wedge back there. Maybe. Check check. One two we're actually doing like a, a whale call this morning. That's the, the great blue whale that we're reaching out to this morning. That's sounded better already. Hey, we're in Ephesians guys. We're um, continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter five verses three through 14. The church just bought some great new um, Pew Bibles. So if you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, we got uh, some great blue-covered copies for you. Bill, can you help me get some Bibles passed out for people who don't have them? It's, it's an intense um, passage in God's Word. Um, you really want to have a copy of the Bible in front of you. I can't stress that enough. Me, foolishness, this amazing. Okay? So... Um, In this passage, Ephesians 5, 3 through 14, the Apostle Paul is teaching us about living the Christian life. Last week, Rod um, taught on this. And in chapter 5, verse 1, there's this, this startling phrase, okay? Here it is. Paul just comes flat out and just tells you, be imitators of God. How's that? Be imitators of God. That's intimidating. Be imitators of God. What does that look like? What does that mean? Can we have some details, Paul? All in favor of details? All in favor of details? This is the most common question I have when I read the scripture. What is this supposed to look like in my life? What is it supposed to look like? Is a great question. And that... Is the passage that we're in. Here in Ephesians chapter five, verses three through fourteen, it's Paul giving us the details. He's fleshing out be imitators of God. That's our passage for today. But I've got to warn you, I've got to warn you this morning that this passage is dark. It's it's a dark passage, if I'll be honest. If somebody had asked me to pick a passage to preach on this morning, I would not have picked this passage would not have picked it. Luckily, the Lord is smarter than me, and here we are. God's word is very realistic. This dark passage is realistic because we live in a dark world. You have that figured out, right? We live in a dark world, and Christians need to know how to address dark topics. We need this passage. Second, we might be tempted to think of our faith in theoretical terms, just like, oh, it's something, it's like a good theory. But as Neil's been really careful to remind us about, our doctrine needs to hit the real world. Our doctrine needs to get dirty. We need this passage. We might be tempted to think of our faith as something that's just for Sunday mornings when we come and we sing Christian songs and we hear Christian sermons. But the, the gospel impacts the smallest details of our lives. We need This passage. Or maybe after hearing a stunning celebration of grace like Rod gave us last week, we might be tempted to think, if we're if we're forgiven, then maybe what I do doesn't really matter. That's incorrect. The Bible will be showing us this. We need this passage. So let's that's enough of a preview for it. Here it comes. Stand with me. Let's read. This is Ephesians chapter five. Verses 3 through 14. God's word to us this morning. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Our great God, you are worthy of our praise. And you said, let light shine out of darkness. And you have shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May that light shine again this morning. May his voice be heard. And may we, his sheep, walk as children of that light for your glory. Amen. Please be seated. All right, in this passage... Paul's basically telling us three things. I'm going to walk us through three different topics to get the, the juice out of what Paul's talking about here. Three things. Pretty easy. First, Paul tells us a bunch of stuff we shouldn't do. Things we shouldn't do. Secondly, he tells us things we should do. Third, he tells us why. Okay, so that's, there's our outline for this morning. That's where I'm going. I hope... You're still tuned in with me. Things we shouldn't do, things we should do, and why. The why is very important. Please tune in, especially on that part. God's not interested in giving us just, you know, God is not a because I said so God. Maybe you had a mom or a dad who was like that, or maybe you've actually said that to your kids. God's not like that. God has some reasons why And finding those out and investigating those is going to be a big part of our Christian lives. Okay, let's start with what we shouldn't do. This is mostly found in verses 3 through 6. And then it's down again in verse 11. kind of comes in in three little categories here. The first thing we shouldn't do is act impurely. This is verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Now I... I am well aware that Crossroads children's ministry slows down during the summers, and that means we've got a lot of little ears in the room this morning. Two of them belong to my family. So I'm going to make sure that my words build up our smallest listeners, and if you are an older listener, I'm going to ask you to please listen carefully and connect some of my unspoken dots, okay? Fair? Okay, good. College kids are like, what? Is that us? No? No? You guys connect the dots. You guys are great at dots. Paul's concern is that believers should be consistent, okay? Paul's concern is that believers should be consistent. Anybody else just driven nuts by hypocrisy? hate hypocrisy. When you like see something, you think it's something, then you you learn about it and it's something else. Hate that. Feel so ripped off. Paul's concern is that believers are not like that. Consistency. That means their attitudes and their behavior should be consistent with their Christianity. He begins with this phrase, sexual immorality. This means any type of sexual activity outside of a committed marriage relationship. Any. This was a big issue in the ancient world. Greco Roman culture was a place where all sorts of curious practices associated with casual sexuality flourished. Some religions even turned that sort of experience into part of the religious quest. It seemed that ancient people had no thought, no restraint was needed, no impulse needed checking, and if there was some fun to be had, have at it. Enlightened people way back then or maybe there's some today did what they wanted to do with their bodies only backwards people would who were still in the dark would practice restraint right attraction is your identity your desire is your destiny your impulse is your identity that's who you are just like listen to your heart and follow it wherever it goes wrong historically christians crash regarding sexuality in two different directions. They think of it like a bike, okay? There's two different ways you can fall off this bike. First of all, an older generation tended to believe that sexuality was evil and wicked. It was dirty and dangerous, and this aspect of God's creation left them feeling guilty. Almost none of those people are still around. And they seemed not to have a lot of kids, Secondly, our new generation, having after discovered the foolishness of that thinking, drew the opposite set of conclusions and are now crashing off the other side of the bike. Now because God made sexuality, they say, he must want us to enjoy whatever our inclinations suggest. Paul props us right back up on our wheels. Do not get fooled, he says. Sexuality is part of God's good creation. And it is an occasion between a husband and a wife for tenderness and intimacy. And we're going to hear much more on that when we reach chapter 5, verse 31, depending on who's preaching it. It is a great blessing to a marriage. It provides deep emotional fulfillment, but casual sex is sinful counterfeit. It's a sinful counterfeit. It's like a thirsty man drinking salt water. Thought that was going to help, ended up ruining it. It's like somebody playing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on a kazoo, okay? It's, that was kind of like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but it's not. It's a counterfeit. First of all, it's stupid, okay? All sin is stupid. Sin is stupid, and we don't get to say stupid in my house so that we can save it for stuff that's really stupid, I've saved it for like three weeks to say today, sin is stupid. Just think. Just think about some of the the public celebrities who have crashed their lives for, in hindsight, for what? No example required there. Secondly, it's disappointing, okay? Uncommitted intimacy. Uncommitted intimacy. Do you hear the lie between those two words? It has the same emotional electricity as heroin, but opiates addict you and kill you physically. Uncommitted intimacy enslaves you and kills you emotionally and relationally. And here's a a little pastoral sidebar. In a room this size with this many people in here, there's probably some, a couple of people who are considering opportunities for uncommitted intimacy. I'll just tell you, there are hundreds of people in this room who, if you would tell them about what you're thinking about, they'd put their arm around you and they would say, listen, God's grace is greater and deeper than you can understand. And then they'd put both of their hands around your windpipe and they would say, run away. But you, man of God, First Timothy 6 says, but you, man of God, flee these things. It is never worth it. It is stupid and it's disappointing. Okay, back to our text. Now moving a little bit faster. The second word is uh, translated impurity here. And it involves sexual impurity. Um, Paul talks about that specifically in Galatians 5.19 and Second Corinthians 12. But the ESVs has that little word, all impurity. The NIV says every kind of impurity. It shows us that Paul's pointing to other sorts of deeper issues of corruption in the human heart. Jesus talks about these in like Matthew 12, 34, where he says, how can you speak good when you are evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The impurity is inside of us. The third word he uses there is covetousness. The NIV translates it greed. That includes sexual covetousness, which means it's the belief that other people exist for your gratification but it also involves all types of greed. It's it's the desire to acquire more and more. Why do people acquire more and more? It's because you love and you trust things more than God. It's this attitude, this covetousness that leads poorer people to steal, as Paul pointed out in chapter four, verse 28, and it leads wealthy people to hoard their possessions. God's people... Must have a culture that is utterly different than this. It's got to be utterly different than the, the culture that Paul described in chapter 4 verses like 17 and following. It's utterly different. It's set apart. It's holy. So first, we must not, we must not act. We should not act impurely. But second, secondly, second, no adverb required. I grade papers sometimes at school, so I get grammar on me. Second. We shouldn't act impurely. We shouldn't speak foolishly. We shouldn't speak foolishly. Paul moves from saying that we shouldn't participate in evil to talking to saying that we shouldn't pronounce evil. He discusses three sins of speech. And again, a lot of these have a sexual connotation to them. The first one is translated filthiness or obscenity. And it refers to an intense ugliness. The second is translated foolish talk. It's the Greek word morologolia moron word. That's, I love that. I'll hardly ever pull up a Greek word unless I get to say the word moron with it. Moroligoria, it's brash, drunken talk that you would find at a party. Moron, just talk. There's no thought bubbles on that. It just comes into the brain and out the mouth. Here it is. The third has this word, has a, the, the Greek word um, trepo, which means twist or turn, and it's translated crude or coarse joking. It's the term for the clever use of words that turns and twists for innuendo. It takes words, it turns them, it twists them. It loves to mock others. It loves to catch something that you said, take your words, twist it, and use it as an insult, or it uses it to charge the conversation with sexual overtones. The 2009 version of this is the phrase, that's what she said. And by the way, if you ever hear someone say, that's what she said, just make a mental note. It's probably been a year since a real woman talked to him. Okay? Paul is not shutting down humor or wordplay, but he views it like anger. Okay? It's like anger. It's appropriate in some occasions, but watch it. that can spiral down into sin. It can be used in a self-indulgent or self-promoting way that has nothing to do with Christ's kingdom. This type of talk, Paul writes to us, it's out of place. It doesn't fit. It's not proper. The King James Version says, it's not convenient. Yay, King James. That's really good. I don't get to say yay, King James very often, but that's great. It's not convenient. It doesn't fit. It doesn't match. It blemishes our faith. It's got no place in our lives. So we shouldn't act impurely. We shouldn't speak foolishly. And third, this is verse 11. We should not fellowship with darkness. In verse 7, Paul exhorted us, do not become partners with them. With who? The sons of disobedience. Do not become partners with the sons of disobedience. And again, in verse 11, Paul commands us, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Okay? So it's not enough for Paul. That we don't just do some things. And it's not enough for Paul that we don't just say some words. He doesn't want us to participate with, he doesn't want us to fellowship with darkness. Now some Christians, you probably know some people like this. Some Christians have taken this verse as an exhortation for Paul to like pull the parachute spiritually. And like get out of the world. Oh, okay, don't have anything, don't be, don't fellowship with darkness. That means, you know, we got to circle the wagons. We got to hole up and bunker down. We got to get to a monastery. You have to burn all your secular CDs and you have to start watching GodTube instead of YouTube. That's what that means. But it doesn't mean that. Check out, that's not what Paul's talking about. Check out 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 through 13 sometime where he talks about, interacting in a sinful world, not meaning pull yourself out of the world. Why would you do that? Remember Jesus? I was on the, I was on the Israel trip. It was a, a fantastic trip. If you get the opportunity, um, do it. But it also reminded me, um, it's good to study the maps in the back of your Bible. It's it really uh, helpful, but um, not essential to my faith. But let me tell you a, a part of it that really um, helped me. Uh, the demoniac guy. Jesus crosses over uh, the Lake of Galilee, demoniac guy, um, in the tombs and naked, and Jesus heals him. Whoa, now he's clothed and in his right mind. Pigs crash, can't swim, dead. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> the guy says to Jesus, let me follow you. Hey, maybe one of these 12 guys isn't going to work out. Maybe I'm the next, like, disciple. And Jesus says, no. No, 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 go back to where you're from and tell people what God has done for you. And the next verse, which I love, says he went back and told people what Jesus did for him. Wait, Jesus said, go tell people what God did for you. He said what Jesus did for you. Connect the dots. But why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus send the man back into the dark world that he was from? Why? Because the guy had a new Power inside of him. That's why. He wasn't going back there helpless. He was going to go change that. It's an amazing story. We do not pull out of the world. But listen. Paul knows that the essence of our Christian faith is heart attitude. Listen. All of life is a battle for your heart. Okay? The shopping mall doesn't just want your money. It wants your heart. ESPN wants your heart. The concert stage, the drama theater, the art gallery, want your heart. The television networks want your heart. The political candidates want your heart. And Paul knows that believers in Christ must give their hearts to the kingdom of God only. Does this mean that we can't shop? Does this mean we can't play sports or view art or watch TV or vote? It doesn't mean that. But listen, You can't fellowship with it. It can't be the source of your security and your identity. You're not to mindlessly subject your brain to the spectacle of this world for entertainment. You're not not to get fueled by it. You're not to get shaped by it. You're not to mindlessly veg out to music with worldly lyrics. Don't just veg out. I just kind of like put it on and just veg out and let it speak to me. No, you don't do that. You don't do that. A Christian is not amused by some of the things that they used to find amusing. A, a Christian may often find herself saying to her non-Christian friends, that's not funny. Here's the change. As a Christian, we love different things. And some of the things that we used to love, we still love, but we love them in, an, in a different order now. It's, it's been restructured. Think of like the, the solar system. And you've put like, you know, you just dropped the sun. You just put Jesus Christ, the son of God, the sun in the middle. And like by gravity's force, everything, your your sports line up into a new orbit. That used to be, some of you, that used to be the middle of your orbit. That used to be the center that everything swung around. Money, my possessions, used to be the thing that everything orbited around. Now Jesus is in the middle of my solar system. And everything else just kind of like drifts and starts orbiting. It changes. We're changed. Our spirit's got a different currency. It's like the Christian's playing Uno. Christian's playing Uno. And the world comes in and puts down like a four of diamonds. And you're like, that, that's, not even, um, that's not even, that doesn't even fit what we're doing here. Does that make sense? It's a new currency of the soul. That's the transition. And we've talked about what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't live impurely. We shouldn't speak foolishly. And we should not fellowship with darkness. But what should we do? All in favor of some positives? All right. Good, good. Me too. What should we do? Verse 4. We should speak thankfully. We should speak thankfully. This is a word that slapped me in the face about four days ago. Listen to this. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. I did not see thanksgiving coming. I thought it was going to be, let there be purity. Let there be holiness. Let there be wholesomeness. And Paul's like, no. Instead of all of those things, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving? Oh, the insight from the Holy Spirit. Thanksgiving is the speech of holy people. Thanksgiving, it's the, it's the crazy accent from the people who are from New Jerusalem. It's thankful text messages, thankful Facebook posts, thankful tweets. Thankful prayers, First Thessalonians 3 or our own Ephesians 1:16. Thankful prayers, Thankful worship. 1 Corinthians 14:16. Thanksgiving is the vernacular for people who are aware that God is at work in this world. God is at work in this world. Be thankful. That's how you, that's, that's one of the overflows of, of the Christian life. Thankfulness. Our speech isn't the posing and posturing of the world. It's not the self-indulgent and self-promoting speech of this dark world. Thanksgiving builds the kingdom of Christ. What should we do? We should speak thankfully. Second, we should walk purely. This is verses eight and nine. Paul writes, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. Walk as children of the light. Well, I'd like you to make a a note in your Bible's Um, My ESV translation translates this Greek word, peripateo. I said I wouldn't do Greek, and then I've done like four more, didn't I? I've got to be more aware of the manuscript as it comes to me. Some of you have NIV Bibles, a great translation, and that translates that verse, live as children of the light. Both of these are really good options. We are so blessed. We are so blessed as English-speaking people to have the privilege of having God's word in our own language. And I am thrilled that Crossroads is not a translation church. You ever, you ever go to a translation church where it was just like, you know, I, I won't finish that sentence. I would rather have us read the weakest translation of the Bible than have no Bibles at all. God uses every version to bless people and to save people. The people who made the NIV translation, they're giving you a little help right here. They're taking an ancient metaphor and they're clarifying it. So the word is actually walk. And they're like, well, it doesn't mean like shoes and street. It means like live. So they're, they're clarifying it. They're, it's very helpful. But I I find Paul's metaphor helpful. The Christian life is a walk. It's a series of steps that fit the basic orientation of our lives. It's progressive. It's a pattern. It's a process. It's a walk. And what characterizes that walk? Here's verse 9. Things that are good, right, and true. Okay? Things that are good. What's good? God is good. Oh, there's some churches where if you say the words God is good like that, the people say all the time? That's right. God is good. So it's, here it is. This is Psalm 118. One. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. God is good and the fruit of his spirit is goodness. And it shows up in his children's lives. His children walk a good walk. Second, God is righteous. This is Isaiah forty five twenty one. God says, there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. This is upright behavior. Our God is a blameless and holy God. And his children walk in righteousness. Third, truth. Jeremiah 10.10 says, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. This is honesty and transparency. It's the life of integrity. God's children walk in truth. So how does this show up in the circumstances of our day? What does this look like? That's the third thing in our passage. That Paul points us to a Christian should speak thankfully should walk purely and thirdly should discern what pleases the Lord this is verse 10 we should try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord Uh, this was so helpful to me this week Paul gave each of his churches a list of ethical commands everybody know that Paul commands some stuff I mean, we're like neck deep in a bunch of commands right now. But he also left room for believers to make decisions with their own renewed thinking. Just hear that. Say, so here's, here's a little freedom. Well, why, are, why are some churches like this and some churches like this and some churches like this? Which is the true church? Well, here's one of the reasons why churches are different. Paul leaves room for us to to use our own renewed thinking. This frustrates a lot of people who just want to know what am I supposed to do? Okay, what am I? Just tell me, what am I supposed to do? I mean, how physically involved can my girlfriend and I be? Is a two-piece bathing suit immodest? Can I read Harry Potter books? Can Christian parents send their kids to public schools? And most urgently, will God be mad at me if I watch that new Spider-Man movie? <laughs> I was here last week. That was sweet. <laughs> Listen, New Testament Christianity, you'll love this. It's not homogenous, okay? It's not making a mold of people. It's not like Islam. It's not, it's not even like large sections of the Old Testament, It's not a religion for one group of people living in one place at one time. On the cross, Jesus, this is Revelation 5, 9 says, He ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, and people, and nation. Okay? So, just grab a hold of this. The Christian, Christianity is a faith that's going to include people in New York skyscrapers, in Augustinian monasteries in nomadic herdsmen tribes. It's going to include a bunch of Dutch people in an Arnes. <laughs> now God does not want his people acting like a bunch of clones. This is why the New Testament is so quiet on stuff. It's a missionary faith. It's a missionary faith. It's going, it's taking over the world. And it can't get hitched into one little section of rules of how we're supposed to act. It's got some space for renewed thinking. Paul gives space to believers. Not for them to make up their own rules which serve their own best interests. Not for them to make up a bunch of rules that justify their selfishness. Well, let's just take a, a brief tour through the last section of the book of Romans for a second. Paul encourages the Romans Don't judge or despise each other, but let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. Then he recognizes he hasn't provided full answers to all of the Romans' concerns. He writes, this is Romans 15, 14. Nobody's memorizing this verse, but it's great. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Look at the responsibility that Paul, he's writing the New Testament. And he's like, you know what? You guys figure that one out. That's a lot. Wow. In Paul's letter to Philemon, he doesn't command Philemon what to do about the runaway slave Onesimus. He just says, act out of goodness and out of your own accord. So we've gone through what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't act impurely, speak foolishly, or partner with darkness. And we've gone through what we should do. We should speak thankfully. We should walk purely. We should discern what pleases the Lord. Now why? 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 This is a very important part. I'm going to f- go through this pretty quickly um, for the sake of uh, time and heat. I'll give you the really short answer. Why should we do this? It's our identity. That's why. It's our identity. I'm going to be like Boaz this morning. I'm going to go through the passage and glean a couple things, and then I'm going to leave sheaves of exegesis behind me for you to take home to Naomi later. (laughs) Bible jokes. You can always tell who grew up in Bible land, okay? So here's, here's just three little pieces of identity that shape why we're to do what we're doing, okay? First of all, we're saints. We're saints. It's not fitting for saints, he says. This is not, saints is not Roman Catholic saints. Lose that. That's really bad thinking. Every, all Christians are saints, all Christians. Uh, Leviticus 20:26 20, says, "You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine." Separated. That's the word holy unto the Lord. That's the Greek word for saints. That's you. That is you. If you belong to Christ, you are a saint. So we're, we're, chosen, we're God's chosen people now, not Gentile sinners. We're God's new creation. We're righteous and holy because we've been united with Christ. Those sinful characteristics from chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, they don't fit anymore. That's not who we are. Secondly, verse 5, we're heirs. I'm kind of taking what Paul says negatively and flipping it. He says that people who, who, don't, who follow darkness have no inheritance. So I'm taking that. Wait a minute. That means people who do walk in God's ways do have an inheritance, they're heirs. If you have an inheritance, it's because you're an heir. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on your inheritance. That's what chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 said. Paul prayed in chapter 1, 18, that we would become increasingly aware of our identity as heirs. Let me me just show you how this, like, stabs um, greed in the heart. If you're an heir of God... You have an unbelievable inheritance coming to you. How many people think that God owns a lot of stuff? Okay? And he can make more. <laughs> and he's going he he says that we have we're his heirs. Now just what does that mean? Just let your imaginations run wild on that, okay? Because I promise it's not going to exceed his generosity. Is God generous? Uh, Okay, is God good? Does does God know you? Does does he love you? Okay, so think about the inheritance that's coming to you. Here's what greed is. Greed is impatience. Greed is, well, I really want $3,500 more a year from my job so that I can get this, so that I can have this. Okay. The God of the universe is going to give you an inheritance in about 20 minutes. <laughs> Do you, like Those of you who are um, my age and younger um, know that like time is just like clipping by, clipping by. That kid over there, he's 10. I, 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 I just figured out how to latch his car seat, okay? I'm going to be taking them into Driver's Ed in about like four minutes. <laughs> Parents, are you with me here? Um, college kids, remember how long summer vacation used to last? <laughs> remember Phineas and Ferb? That was like forever. Their summer vacation just like, wow, not anymore. Your summer vacation's just, up, I won't even say it because you'll be mad at me. <laughs> it is moving quickly. And guess what's coming, Christian? Your inheritance is coming. It's big. It's proof of God's love for you. It's huge. Don't get impatient and start chasing after stuff. Don't get impatient. Third, we are light. This is verse 8. Look at Paul's words in verse 8. At one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He doesn't say that we were in darkness. That's true. More extreme, he says we were darkness. Next, he doesn't say that we've been enlightened or that we got shined on, or that we've been brought into the light, which I guess is sort of all true. He says, "You are now light. You are light in the Lord. You're light." First John 1 verse five tells us that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus said in John 8:12, "I am the light." Of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Your identity is changed. Christian growth is the maturing of your conduct to match that identity. I want to I close with this. The Bible gives us two complementary metaphors for growth in our Christian life. One is um, choice. Choice. Um, make godly decisions. Uh, last week, Rod, the passage that um, Rod preached on was Paul talking through this metaphor of choice. Put this on, put that off. Put this on, put that off. Make godly choices. So important. Jesus says, I mean, one of the least memorized verses in the New Testament, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. That is a choice. No one tears their eye out on a whim. No one spontaneously decides, well, I don't know how it happened, but just kind of like I just reached in and pulled my eye out. wasn't even, didn't even know what I was doing. I kind of must have zoned out there for a minute and I pulled an eye out. Not happening. It's a radical choice. It's a radical statement about choice. Again, one of my favorite verses, 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul writes to Timothy, but as for you, a man of God, flee these things. There's part of the Christian life that's an active and radical choice. Elsewhere in the New Testament, like our passage today, Christian behavior is described as fruit. As fruit that appears and reveals the true character of what it's coming from. This is what Paul says when he's, you are light in the Lord, walk as children of the light. Choice, fruit, both. Now when you de-emphasize the choice part, when you're like, well, I'm not going to talk about choice. You end up thinking of t- Christianity in terms of letting go. It's, if it's fruit, you let go. You let God. You surrender only and you allow the the fruit to appear. I mean, trees aren't making a lot of decisions. They're just becoming what they are. That's true enough, but it's not by itself. When you de-emphasize the, the fruit metaphor and you just charge after the choice, you end up driving yourself towards works righteousness. Show God how committed you are. He died for you. What are you gonna do for him? What can you do to show God how serious you are? Wait a minute. That starts to get off the tracks as well. Both of these things. So today I'm going to follow Paul's metaphor a little bit. I'm going to close with this um, illustration. I'm going to talk about Paul's metaphor of fruit. But I'm, I want to make sure that I mention this, this choice part as well. I want to talk about two trees for a second to close here. Two trees. Um. First tree is a Christmas tree. I have my wife's um, grudging approval for this illustration. Come here. Christmas trees. Christmas trees. Everybody, I know, Christmas in July. A Christmas tree is uh, beautiful. I mean, you, you see one, you just can't help but smile. Um, a Christmas tree is like one of the like prettiest things on earth. It's, you know, you walk into a mall. My, it's one of my uh, woodland malls in Chicago. has got like a 60-foot Christmas tree that they decorate. I don't know how they do it. It's, I don't know how they, they, they spray stuff. I don't know how they get all the ornaments up that high. But listen, a Christmas tree is artificial. It's not growing. I hope you know that. It's not actually growing. It's artificial. It's easily decorated. You, you hang these ornaments on them, okay? And that means in about, uh, depends who's decorating it. It looks good pretty quick. M- my wife can get our Christmas tree decorated in about seven minutes. I can get ours decorated in about three hours with two cups of coffee. <laughs> Do you see this? These are ornaments. This is what you hang on a Christmas tree, it looks good. It looks symmetrical. You hang lights on it. You spiral. There's a f- fuse that's broken, so you've got to go back to Meyer, pick up a new thing, and you can drape lights on a Christmas tree. However, an apple tree is different. An apple tree is different. Apple tree is not so, um, it's not quite as pretty. I mean, you wouldn't like bring one into your house and set it up in the corner and have people come ooh and ah at it, right? It's, uh, it's not symmetrical, but, but it's alive. It's alive. It grows slow. It's nourishing. Oh, man. Okay, that, that might be the one that Eve got. That one's a good-looking one. Okay, the fruit on an apple tree is real. It's nourishing. And I just want us to hold, I just want to hold this up for us. I think sometimes Christians, we get so impatient because we want our Christian lives to be Christmas trees. We want it to look good right away. We, we, um, you got a friend that comes to Christ and you just want them to have fruit right away. You don't get fruit right away. You get ornaments right away. Just watch. Just watch yourself. Watch it. how, oh, and how come when it's artificial, when your faith is artificial, it matches each other. See? So your faith, your view of something looks the same as mine. See, we match. The Christian life? No. No. No, no, like the the fruit comes off, it looks different. It's different sizes. That's big. That's the same size. Okay. (laughs) Second service, I've got a new tweak. It doesn't need to match. Guess why? It's alive. It's organic. It's real. This is the Christian faith. This is the Christian faith. Not immediately pretty, not artificial, not matching. Cloneliness is not next to godliness, okay? Okay. I'll let that one simmer for another minute. (laughs) But real, alive, and nourishing. Christian, let's become what we are. Let's become what we are. We are saints. Let's live and speak in a way that fits that. We are heirs. Let's act. Let's have faith that grabs onto that future inheritance and makes it ours. We are light. Let's walk as children of the light and let's allow the fruit of what God is doing in our lives to show up among us. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. It has taught us the blessing of the person who does not act impurely, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. It has taught us um, who doesn't fellowship with darkness by standing in the way of sinners and who doesn't speak foolishly in the seat of mockers. God, we want to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither so that in all that we do we prosper. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done so that we can have this new identity. Just in in the verses right before this, God, it says that you that you gave, that you were sacrificed, and that you were a fragrant offering. I'm just reminded of that phrase, that fragrant offering, God. That's what you said Noah's sacrifice was, and when you smelled that, and when you saw that, and you were pleased by it, you determined that no more wrath, you would never destroy the world again with water, and when you saw the pleasing sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there's no more wrath for us. We are now your sons and daughters. We are now heirs of your kingdom. We are now light as you are light. Help us to live into that truth this week. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.